Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Remember to subscribe to our free podcast so you won't miss any of our illuminating content. Here is the number one most downloaded podcast for 2017, episode 173, Peter Gray, Freedom to Learn. In the process, in the name of education, we are depriving children of the opportunity to do the things that children need to do to educate themselves, to learn the really important lessons of life. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. If you're ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starter is Peter Gray. Peter is a research professor of psychology at Boston College. He has conducted and published research in neuroendocrinology, developmental psychology, anthropology, and education. He's an author of an internationally used introductory psychology textbook, now in its seventh edition, which views all of the psychology from an evolutionary perspective. Much of his research focuses on the role of play in human evolution and how children educate themselves through play and exploration when they are free to do so. He's expanded on these ideas in his book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct of Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. He's also the author of a regular blog called Free to Learn in Psychology Today magazine. Welcome, Peter. I'm glad to be here. So excited to have him. I just finished Peter's book, Free to Learn, and it is absolutely fantastic. It is a book that's very thorough, that's so comprehensive with scientific studies, yet it's very interesting. I had a very hard time even putting it down every time I picked it up. And so I can't wait to talk about it. However, before we get into any of that, can you go ahead and tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, well, I'll try to be brief. I I grew up in the 1950s, primarily in the Midwest, time when children played a lot. I did and played uh, outdoors most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) We moved a lot. In every community that I lived, uh, there was a different uh, children's culture that I had to adapt myself to. I had to learn the games of the kids played there. Now, that was a time when adults uh, paid very little attention to uh, what kids were doing. So we were lucky. (laughs) We we went out and played with other kids without adult interference, without adults always telling us what to do, running our play as if they know how to do it better than we do. I think that that experience growing up, I'm sure it has contributed more in a more lasting way to my education than anything I ever did in school. And it certainly is part of, you know, my memories of play. And when I see the huge differences between the way children are growing up today and the way they grew up then, and really the way children normally throughout history have grown up with a lot of independence, a lot of opportunity to interact with other children away from adults, that's really that distinction between this sort of abnormal situation we see today and the more normal situation. Mm-hmm 
historically that I grew up in, that's that plays a role in uh, much of my research and what I write about. So that's one part of me. I did uh, go to college. I remember telling my parents who hadn't gone to college that uh, I was thinking of it. And uh when I was maybe 15, and they said, well, you know, that's all right if, if you want to, but you should know we don't have any money for that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That, and so I recognized that. I didn't expect them to have any money for that. I knew they didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it led me to think at age 15 that, well, if I'm going to go to college, maybe I should really start studying harder, and get a scholarship. So I I did. Uh, I began to work hard in school I, in a way that I hadn't been for so much. And I ended up getting a scholarship to Columbia University. And it paid for my tuition and some of my uh, and a little bit extra. But I also needed to work. And I got jobs working with kids. I had been an athlete in high school and I was able to get jobs sort of as a, as assistant athletic director in youth groups. And I also had a job uh, as an assistant in a nursery school. So, again, these were experiences that in some ways probably played a more formative role in the development of my interests than the, actually the courses I was taking at Columbia because I was involved with kids. I, I, I was involved with little kids. I was involved with older kids, enjoying them in a situation where they're playing. I went on, however, I also have always been a scientist. I went on to a scientist sort of by disposition. I mean, even as a kid, I used to, you know, I, here's an example. I When I was 10 years old, we lived in a house where a railroad track ran pretty close to the house. And for some reason, I got fascinated by uh, how many cars there, how many cars there were on each train, and and whether that varied from day to day. And <laughs> I began keeping data. I had pages, notebook pages of data on what time the train went by and how many cars there were. <laughs> Why on earth that would be of interest to anybody? But for some reason, to me. It was fascinating, and it was just to me the idea of all this data and the calculations I could make from it. So it was maybe in some sense the first inclination of my interest in in data and and observation and making inferences from data and, and so on. I also was always interested in the outdoors, and I did a lot of fishing and got interested in animals. And so I ended up studying a lot of biology, but also was interested uh, in human problems and began to realize the real problems we have in the world have more to do with psychology than with physics, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and uh, how people get along with one another and so on. So I ended up kind of um, studying a lot of psychology and a lot of biology. I went on to graduate school in biology, also in New York City, at this time at the Rockefeller University, and began doing neuroscience. At that time, I uh, got married. I was, I guess, 24 when I was married. Uh, We had a baby the next year. We lived in a one-room apartment in New York with the baby. And then when I got my job, my first real job uh, at Boston College as a professor a few years later, that baby was now three and eventually he started going to school, <laughs> and eventually he rebelled at school. By the age of nine, he was very seriously rebelling at school, and it was that rebellion and my having to figure out how to deal with that that actually led me to change uh, the focus of a lot of my own uh, interests and in research 
in the direction that I'm going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I think that's a great introduction to set us up kind of of why you wrote this book for Free to Learn, at least in the prologue, it kind of goes through that story. And I find it compelling as a father when your son rebelled and he actually said the words go to hell. Is that correct? <laughs> and and let's, yeah. let's kind of talk about that, you know, kind of what your journey looked like that led you to discover, you know, what your research on free play and some of those things. Yeah, you know, I won't tell the whole story. I'll leave it to people to <laughs> discover in the book. But there was a major confrontation in, in the uh, principal's office of the school where uh, many of the school authorities were there. His mom was there. I was there. And we were all there to tell him in no uncertain terms that he had to uh, follow the rules of the school, which he was deliberately not following because he felt like school was prison. He felt like this was a violation of his rights. And he actually could articulate that even as a young kid, he could. Mm -hmm. And after we all said our piece was when he just looked at us and he said, go to hell. And that was when his mom and I recognized that we had to be on his side and not against him. We had to, we just immediately at that point recognized that he was right, <laughs> that at least for him, school was not a healthy place to be. And uh, we had to find some alternative to it. It led us to find the Sudbury Valley School. I had actually heard of it. I had knew a little bit about it, but we had not really seriously considered it as a place for our son to go. But Ultimately, we went there. He immediately, once he believed it was true that they actually do what they say they do, he immediately fell in love with the school. This was exactly what a school ought to be. But here's a school. This is uh, jumping ahead a little bit, maybe. But here's a school where there are children there from age four on through high school age. There's no curriculum. There's no test. There's nobody telling you what you have to do. There are a lot of rules at the school, but they're not rules about what you learn. They're rules of behavior. And all of those rules are made democratically by a vote in which every student, as well as staff members, has one vote. Today, there are about 160 or 170 students and about seven staff members. So there's always many, many more students than there are staff members. But the school is run democratically by the students and staff in that way. Well, this is as, you know, again, no tests, no curriculum, you know, no, nobody, nobody even watch it going around and nagging you. Uh, don't you think you should do this or that? The staff members simply don't do that. They think that's that education is the child's responsibility, not the adult's responsibilities. So the school provides the conditions for learning, but it doesn't make anybody do anything. You know, <laughs> well, this is about as different as you can imagine. Yeah. A regular school. If you were to go there and visit, knowing only that it's a school, you would assume, well, they must be on recess. But you would find that every time you went. You wouldn't find, you might find a few kids in a seminar on occasion. You certainly would find some people reading, but they would be lounging around reading what they want to read. They wouldn't look like they're studying. Maybe you would find at, at sometimes you went there, maybe a little seminar of uh, kids who are decided they want to learn math uh, so that they can do well in the SAT test because they're about to want to go on to college. But for the most part, you're finding kids doing just exactly what you would expect kids to do when they're free. They're playing, they're exploring, they're hanging out, they're talking to one another, they're strumming on guitars, they're playing video games in these days. <laughs> they're doing all the kinds of things you would expect kids to do. 
And you, you might think if you're a person who believes as the great majority of people in our country do that, um, you're not going to become educated that way, that they're not going to become educated. I had my doubts. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was uh, delighted that my son was happy at this school, but I wanted to make sure that he wasn't cutting his options short by going there. If he went on and he went on through graduation age, could he go to college if he wanted to? Not that I, the kind of parent who believes that it's all that important to go to college, but I would want it at least to be an option for yeah. him. I would want him to feel like he can't do it because he's hasn't gone through the typical hoops that you go through to go on to college. So I did a study of the graduates at that time. The school had already been in existence long enough that there were some people who, there were about uh, 90 people, 90 students who were graduates by my definition, which was that they had left the school typically around the age that you would typically graduate from a high school, but it could be uh, younger or occasionally maybe a year older, but not to go on to any other high school, but rather to go on to life. And so those are the people I considered to be graduates. And there were among them some, because the school had been in existence long enough, who had done all of what would have been their K through 12 education there. Never been to anything that looked like to most people like a school. And so I did this study, and lo and behold, I found, wow, they're doing pretty well in life. They're happy. Those who wanted to go to college didn't have any difficulty getting in, which was actually, it turned out, the majority of them eventually, not all of them went immediately to college, including, in some cases, rather elite colleges. And, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, how did they get in? And I did ask them that question. And it was it was a very, very interesting finding. You know, the people who have taken charge of their own education in their own life, figure out how to solve problems, like how do I get into a college when I don't have any grade point average to tell them about or <laughs> haven't taken any of the required courses. They figure out how to do it. They figure out how to appeal to the college administrators. And it turns out that colleges, I think this is even more true today yeah, than when definitely. I study that colleges are looking for people, believe it or not, who have a, who have done something different. You know, especially the more elite colleges, kids who've uh, kids who have all A's and taken all the honors classes and done all the appropriate extracurricular activities and done the volunteer activities that they're encouraged to do so it'll look good on their on their resume. You know, <laughs> those kids are a dime a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they're and just following somebody else's plan. You know, they're that's... following somebody else's plan. It's pretty clear they are. But here's kids who have kind of taken control of their own life and they've done some of their own things and they have authentic interests and they're able to convey those interests. And that's interesting to the college uh, admissions people. So that was part of it. But at any rate, to, to make a long story short, that study convinced me that the school works. The other thing is I did is I, I tried to find out you know, why they went to the school. I did a little, you know, what kind of family background they came from. And they, these are not, you know, there's the whole range of kids. These are not all kids who you would predict would do well no matter where they went to school. That was certainly not true. And in fact, for many of them, it was quite the opposite. Many of them had gone to Sudbury Valley precisely because they had been failing in public school or they had been, re my son was rebelling. He wasn't failing, but he was he, he was rebelled, but many of these kids would certainly not have been regarded as the cream of the crop from the <laughs> view 
public school system. There's a whole range, a whole range of personality types. Some of pe some people who really are goal getters, and some people who like a kind of more relaxed existence. And the nice thing about a place like this is you can you can sort of carve out your own niche, depending on what your personality is. You can you can kind of create your own educational route that fits your personality. That's kind of uh, with his book. I mean, it's entitled Free to Learn, but it talks a lot about free play and what that does, you know, for children in education. You know, let's talk about that a little bit about what free play is. I mean, what does it look like? Yeah, no, first let me say, I, I do use the term free play in uh, in the book, especially near the beginning of the book, because I want to make it clear that I'm not talking about play in the way that some people today talk about play. I mean, play is a word that can be used in a number of different ways. We talk about people going out to play baseball, and you go out to play baseball it's play if you're going out to play a pickup game and you're creating your own game. And it's not play if you're going out to a little league game where yeah. the coach is uh, creating the game. Well, uh, and that's really what a lot of our kids are doing nowadays, right? I mean, you talk about that in your right. book, too. The kind that's of the, ter right. the terrible irony is that right. we as parents are trying to get them in so many things that it's so structured that there right. are things so that should have been play. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So that's why I call it free play. Elsewhere, I just call it play because in my view, if it's not free, it's not really play. So let me define then what I mean by play. And it really is free play to be play. <laughs> and the first criterion for an activity to be play is that it be freely chosen and self-directed. It's an activity that you yourself choose to do. You don't have any pressure on you to do it. Not only are you freely choosing it, but once you are in it, you are directing your own behavior within it. So it's so freely chosen and self-directed. And part of what that means is if you're playing with other kids, you and the other kids together are agreeing on the rules or creating the rules or creating the play that you're doing. So it's always a creative activity. And when it's with other people, when it's with other kids and kids like to play with other kids, that's they always prefer, almost always prefer to play with other kids when they're free to do so. So in play, you're learning how to co-create rules which is an extremely valuable lesson for human beings everywhere because we're social animals and we need to learn how to live with other people and co-create the rules and negotiate differences and so on. And if you watch kids playing together, they're doing that all the time. Now, when adults take over, we destroy that. And it no longer is play, certainly is no longer free play when adults take over and they're creating the rules and they're solving all the problems and and then one of the greatest um, lessons of play is taken away. So that's the primary thing that I mean by free in that free play. But I also, I have actually a five-part definition of play, and maybe I'll just very quickly indicate what those parts are. Because yeah, it really, knowing those parts, really, once you think of it, you can almost see automatically how play is so beneficial. So the first thing is that I just said, freely chosen and self-directed. It's how children learn how to 
create their own activities. It's how children learn to create and follow through a, an activity because it's freely, it's freely chosen and self-directed. The second characteristic of play is that it's intrinsically rewarding. You're not doing it for some extrinsic reward. You're not doing it for a trophy or an A on a report card or a gold star or praise from your parents. You're doing it because you really like it. <laughs> you really <laughs> want to do this. It's the activity itself rather than any extrinsic rewards you get from it. So play is how you learn what you love. It's how you find your passions. Children are designed to play at a lot of different things, to try out different things, and then they end up playing more at those things that they really like, and they become good at those. And that's how people develop interests. It's how people develop, you know, one of the things that I found in my study of the graduates of Sudbury Valley, and more recently in uh, so-called unschoolers, homeschoolers who are in charge of their own education, when they go on in life, they very often choose careers that are direct extensions of of interests and passions that they developed in play when they were kids. So the fact that play is a place where you're doing what you want to do is means also it's where you discover what you really like to do and what you want to become good at doing. So then the th a third characteristic is that, uh, and this one always surprises people, or at least surprises some people, is that play always has rules. Play is never random. It always ha has structure to it. Sometimes we talk about unstructured play, but uh, there's no such thing as unstructured play. All play is structured. It's just a question of who's structuring it. And my argument is that it's not play unless it's structured by the children themselves. So in play, children are creating rules or choosing rules or agreeing to abide by a certain preconceived set of rules and then they are behaving in accordance with those rules. So play always requires restraint. You're always controlling your behavior. An example I like to give is to think about a play fight, you know, about two boys chasing one another around and wrestling and throwing one another over and all the <laughs> kind of things that boys might do. Girls do it too sometimes, but to a less degree. And when girls do it, it generally looks a little bit less random and violent than the boys do. But this looks like it doesn't have rules. But think about it. And the kids know it has rules. You, there are certain things you can't do. You can't bite. You can't kick. You can't scratch. You can't really hurt the other person because then it wouldn't be play anymore. You have to, if you're the stronger of the two, you have to self-handicap in some way. If you're going to throw your playmate, you've got to throw him onto a pillow or onto a pile of leaves or something where he's not going to get hurt. The difference between a play fight and a real fight is the play fight has rules. So I could go through every kind of play that you can think of, and I can tell you what the rules are for that play. Uh, so play, among other things, is where children learn not only to create rules, but to live by rules, to control their behavior, to control their impulses. You know, one of the ways that we human beings differ from other animals is we, we can't just behave according to our instincts and whims. 
we have to abide by certain socially agreed upon rules. We have to we have to restrain ourselves. That's part of being a human being. We can't live in human society if we can't do that. Children are practicing that all the time in play. They're practicing living within the rules of whatever game they're playing. They're practicing restraint. Fourth characteristic of play is that play always has an least some element of imagination involved with it. You are stepping out of the real world when you're in play into an imaginary world. It's a hypothetical world. You are practicing imagination. And in, in my book, I, I point out how imagination underlies all higher order human thinking, all of what we think of as hypothetical thinking, scientific thinking, even the ability to think about tomorrow, which hasn't happened yet, involves imagination. Imagine what might happen tomorrow, and if this happens tomorrow, what would I do about it, and so on. This is a, this is a way that human beings think that at least we believe no other animal is capable of thinking this way, in this hypothetical way, involving imagination. And children are practicing that all the time in play, because all play involves imagination. And then a fifth characteristic of play, which really follows naturally from the others, is that when you are playing, your mental state is one of intense involvement, very alert, but not highly stressed. You know, because if you were highly stressed, if you were in a situation, if the play was leading to something that was really fearful or painful, to the degree that was no longer pleasant, no longer it was so unpleasant that any benefit or value or joy you were getting out of was outbalanced by the unpleasantness or the fear created, you would quit. Just as you're always free to join play, you're always free to quit. So it's not so play is never terrifying. Play is never that stressful. You are in your mind is relaxed, but it's not stressed. I mean, I'm sorry, your mind is active and engaged, but not stressed. And that is the frame of mind that some psychologists refer to as flow. And there's a lot of research showing that this flow state of mind is the ideal state of mind for learning new things, for thinking outside of the box, being creative, doing a lot of the kinds of things that we think of as sort of the highest human intellectual endeavors. So I think that my purpose for sort of going through this five-part definition of play is because I think if you think about each part of the definition, it shows, wow, <laughs> think of all the things that children are learning when they're playing. And when we deprive them of play, as we so often do in our culture, we are depriving them of the opportunity to learn those things. Before we go on, let's listen to this message. Two years ago, we released our first podcast. This seems so surreal when most podcasts don't survive past seven episodes. Well, here we are at year two on episode 173 with more illuminating conversations coming up. Last year, we did a month-long anniversary celebration, giving away great stuff for anyone who left us a rating and review for the podcast. This year, the desire for these reviews continue to be needed. They help others find our show, and like anything these days, ratings are important to grow the message. If you have enjoyed this free podcast and want to see it continue well into the future, please take the time to leave us a rating and review. 
Also, if you really want to see us grow, please consider sending a donation because even though it's a free show, it takes time, effort, and money to make it continue to grow. To find out more about these options and others, go to the Sponsor tab at theluminousmind.net. Help us to continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education. That's a great kind of segue, I guess, into you know how important play is in education, in real learning, in real education, not in just schooling. You know, let's kind of talk about that a little bit of what our force education is doing and not allowing kids to play. How those you, you talk about seven sins, basically, of what how school is kind of ruining our educational pursuits. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, over time, you know, this is one of the things I talk about early in the book is over time, we have seen with every 10 years for the past 60 or 70 years, children have become less free than they were the previous 10 years. <laughs> you know, I mentioned uh, early on in talking a little bit about my own history that uh, when I was a kid, kids were outdoors playing and uh, adults didn't see it as their business to tell kids how to play or to supervise them or to uh, be watching them and guarding them all the time as they do today. Kids certainly from five years old on were free to go out and play in the neighborhood and even go beyond the neighborhood. Nowadays, uh, for a variety of reasons, kids aren't doing that. And uh, the primary reasons have to do, there's really two two reasons why we're not letting kids uh, play on their own as we used to, especially not play outdoors. One is that school has become a much, much more weighty issue that, than it used to be. You know, when I was in school in the 1950s, first of all, the, school, the average school year in the United States was five weeks shorter than it is today. We had, a, we had four whole weeks extra summer vacation than kids have, to do, have today, plus another extra week of vacation during the winter. Uh, on average, when this is averaged out over the whole country. We had recesses. We had real recesses in elementary school. Half hour in the morning, half hour in the afternoon. We had a full hour of lunch. And during those times, we were free to go out and play. And we didn't even have to stay on college campus. We could go off on the school campus. We could go off campus and play. Even elementary school kids could go home if they wanted. But most kids, at least in the schools that I was in during uh, that that hour lunch period preferred to play in the woods adjacent to the school uh, rather than to go home. We'd eat our lunch quickly and then we'd spend the rest of our time playing. So there was no such thing as homework. Uh, Maybe once in a while a teacher would ask us to write a story, a short story or a poem at home and bring it in or something like that, but we never took worksheets home. There was never any expectation that home was a place where we ought to be doing schoolwork. So when we were off from school, we were playing. And and there wasn't this idea that children are better off in adult-directed activities when they're out of school. We were involved in kid-directed activities. 
over time, since about the mid-1950s, there's been a gradual taking away of that freedom, partly because the, the burden of school becomes greater and greater. Children aren't learning anymore, but they're spending a lot more time at it. So that's happening. And in addition, we've developed for a variety of reasons these fears about letting children just go out and play. Parents are afraid of... Uh, child molesters or uh, kidnappers or uh, bullies or who knows what. When you survey parents, interestingly, there's probably child molesters that they're primarily afraid of, even though the data tell us this is an extremely rare happening. And once yeah. in a long, long time, it happens. We're actually if, safer today, correct? Than we're, we were. we're definitely safer today regarding that. And child molestation is a real problem, but it's it occurs primarily in the home and secondarily in churches and in schools, <laughs> right? So, you know, you could argue, I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, that your kid is safer out on the street than home or in school or in church. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we do have to be careful about it. We do have to warn our kids about it and, and so on and so forth. But it's much more likely to be that um, odd uncle or this, you know, than, than some stranger on the street. So we've got these fears that prevent us from from letting our kids out uh, to play. We're, we're afraid of traffic, even, you know, even places that we didn't used to be. So even places that have have no more traffic, even have less traffic than other places did in the 1950s. People are afraid to let their kids out, and they'll sometimes say it's traffic. Kids can learn how to manage traffic. Kids don't run randomly in the street. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, they, you give them a little coaching about it, and kids can. Kids always have played. I mean, my, my late first wife grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, a place where there was a lot of, there were speeding cabs and there was a lot of traffic on her street. But she, by the age of five, could go out and play on the street with other kids. And people just weren't all that worried about it. That's something that's changed in our, in our world. And we think that we're doing a favor to kids by protecting them. We're protective of our kids. And, and that's understandable. We love our kids. And we want to protect them. And we get this idea in their head something terrible might happen and we want, don't want that to happen so we protect them we also have come to believe we've sort of bought the message that when children are in adult directed activities they're learning more than what they're learning when they're in self-directed activities so these things are done out of love for our, uh, love for children not because we want to be mean to children <laughs> and but the irony is that in the process of doing that we are actually hurting our children. In the process, in the name of education, we are depriving children of the opportunity to do the things that children need to do to educate themselves, to learn the really important lessons of life, like how to create their own activities, how to get along with other kids, how to regulate their own emotions when they get into tiffs with other kids, you know, and how to, how to control, how, how to negotiate with other kids. These are such important lessons, and you can only learn them when you are allowed the freedom to learn them where you're, there's no adult solving all these problems for you and telling you what to do. You have to learn them through real ex- life experience. And for kids, that life experience comes when they're playing with other kids away from adults because otherwise adults are going to solve the problems for them, especially today they are. And the other part of the irony is that in the name of safety, we don't let our kids go out and play or do so-called risky things. 
And the result of that is they're not learning how to deal with risk. They're not developing courage. They're not learning. They're not, de- they're not acquiring the confidence that they actually can do things and that they actually know how to confront danger. And in the long run, we're creating more harm than good by protecting them because the result is there's a huge increase in anxiety among young people today, not only among children, but, uh, but especially among teenagers and young adults, because they're growing up not learning how to handle strange situations, new situations, somewhat frightening situations, because we've always protected them from that. So when they are finally in the world and they are have to be kind of independent, they get frightened. And when they get frightened and too frightened, they sometimes, and, and they feel that they're failing at something, they get depressed. Rates of anxiety and depression are far higher than they've ever been before among young people. And I think it's largely because kids are growing up not having the opportunities to learn how to take control of their own life because we're controlling their lives. And if you haven't learned how to take control of your own life, then when you finally are in situations where you kind of have to, the world becomes scary. It's anxiety provoking. And if you really feel you can't handle that, the world also becomes depressing. Yeah. Well, and that's what's so great about Peter's book is that it really does go through. It's very thorough. Like I said, it's very comprehensive of how play helps us educationally, how it helps us socially and emotionally, you know, all those aspects of of developing really well-rounded children that are educated and happy and all those things. Let's kind of talk about what we as parents, you know, in your chapter, he has a chapter called Trustful Parenting. How can we recreate this hunter-gatherer style education that you talk about in the history of education that's so important for kids? I mean, how can we do that as parents in today's world? That's a very good question. It's harder in today's world than it was in the past. (laughs) It is harder. It's harder not because of any sort of realities about how dangerous it is out there. It's harder because of all the social pressure. Society is just... Uh, You know, I hear from parents all the time who say, you know, I... uh, I believe in free range parenting. I, I let my kids walk to school by themselves or with each other, or I let them go to the park without me going there. And some neighbor who thinks they're doing a good deed reports that, you know, to, either they come and tell me I observed or they go and tell the children, what don't you think you should be home? Or, you know, or they tell me that, oh, or, or the worst, they call the police. <laughs> and then even worse than that, of course, is calling the police. And that's happened. There are a number of very well-known cases that have been in the news about that. But there are also a lot of lesser well-known cases of the very same thing happening. And there are, there are parents who are wonderful parents, and they got very healthy kids who are being investigated by Child Protective Services <laughs> because they're regarded as negligent for allowing their children to walk to school or to go to the park, things that all kids used to do. <laughs> really and truly, all kids used to do it. Yeah. And, so, and so that's the world we live in. So I think there are, there are ways of solving this problem. And, of course, the, the real solution will come when more people in our culture recognize how important it is that we allow children to play and explore and that and recognize that children are really a lot more competent than we think than than we give them credit for these days 
They really can. You can teach young children how to cross a busy street and they can follow the rules. They're often better than adults at following the rules, looking both ways, being mm -hmm. careful. I remember, I mean, here's a story. I was four years old and I, this is one of my earliest memories. And at that time, we lived in Minneapolis on a very busy street, Minneapolis, Minnesota, very busy street right in the middle of the city. And I remember it was important for my mom to teach me to be able to cross a busy street by myself when I was four years old. So I actually remember the lesson. She said, um, I'm going to give you, a, you know, five cents to go and buy a popsicle. And it's two blocks away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'd been there before. I knew where it was. And she had told, she had shown me every time we crossed the street, when we went there together, she showed me how to cross the street. And she had said, I want you to go by yourself. And I remember being a little frightened about it. Four years old, I'm going down this busy street, two blocks to go and buy a popsicle. But in those days, that wasn't an uncommon thing. You Parents recognized kids are going to be outdoors playing. We want to be sure they know how to safely cross the street. And so after that one experience, I, I came home beaming with confidence, you know, I, I can do this. I can go all by myself two blocks away to get a popsicle. Parents don't do that kind of thing today. They don't even let older kids go by themselves, yeah. you know, so that, that idea that instead of, instead of growing up in fear of our children outside, let's be realistic. Let's teach them what they need to know, let's counsel them and let's understand that they they can they can learn these things. They can take care of themselves. They're they're much more competent than we think they are. I wouldn't let a child under four do that. There's something that happens at four. Hunter gatherers actually recognize this. They recognize that around the age of four is the age of what they called common sense, <laughs> you know. <laughs> This is the age at which children are not going to just do something crazy. They're not going to run off into the jungle where there are tigers. You know, they're going to they're going to be more cautious, and they're not going to try to pick up a poisonous snake. And they're going to they're able to remember rules, and they're able to they're able really to take care of themselves. And especially they're able to in the context of play with older kids. Younger kids will tend to hang around older kids for um, for help when they need help, and so on. So. These are things that we've got to we've got to relearn this. We've got to learn to trust our children. And it doesn't mean that we just throw them out. It means that and let them learn totally by experience. We you know, we do need to do some teaching and explaining and letting them know what the rules are, letting them know. You know, if somebody pulls up next to you in a car and gives you candy and asks you if you'd like to go for a ride with them, stay away from that person. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a valuable lesson to tell to every one of our kids, but we don't have to protect them by keeping them indoors. In the long run, we're hurting them by doing that. Yeah. Well, I usually ask this question kind of at the beginning of a interview, but I really feel like it's pretty. I mean, through his book, he talks about his own personal experience of, you know, his his own becoming uh, coming to this idea that free play is good for education. Do you want to just go ahead and tell our audience how you feel like your paradigm changed over time and, and with your research and with experience with your own children and those types of things? Yeah, well, of course, I already told the story of how I first uh, got interested in children's education and the idea that children, through their own activities, can educate themselves. And that led me to a real interest in play, because when I observed the children at Sudbury Valley, they were 
playing. And and then I actually had a graduate student uh, who uh, did a doctoral dissertation on um, involving observations at Sudbury Valley School. He was there for many, many days uh, taking careful notes, especially about age-mixed play. And and documenting how children were learning, all the things that children seemed to be learning just in this free play that they were engaged with with one another. And so that was very eye-opening to me. Well, I and that's another way to keep your kids safe, right, is the mixed-aged playing, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Older kids, naturally, they, you don't have to tell them to. Older kids, when, they're, when they know younger kids, and this is the kind, these aren't kids who don't know one another. These are kids who are all part of the same community. It's like a neighborhood, an old-fashioned neighborhood. We played in age-mixed ways, and we all knew one another, and older kids would kind of look out for us, and some of us had older siblings and younger siblings. We'd look out for one another. At Sudbury Valley School, in this context, the kids all are part of the same community. They care about one another. They're looking out for one another. The older kids are helping the younger kids. Sometimes if younger kids get into a fight, the older kids will break it up, solve the fight, solve the problem for them. You know, so the, the presence of age mixing definitely makes it safer for everybody. So those observations played a role. There's another interesting thing when you're talk, asking the question about what experiences led me to sort of what I might say is enlarge and modify somewhat the paradigm within which I'm thinking. I remember my first wife died many years ago, and I remarried about 15 years ago, and at that time acquired uh, two young stepchildren. And as part of sort of bonding in this new marriage, we took a trip, a family vacation to uh, the Dominican Republic. I remember being, we were in the Dominican Republic in one of the major cities, and I saw kids outdoors playing all kinds of games and no adults around. And it suddenly struck me, wow, this is the way I used to play. (laughs) I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it before. I I was interested in education. I was interested in how the kids were playing at Sudbury Valley School. It hadn't really struck me that outside of Sudbury Valley School, kids at large in our culture are no longer playing like they used to. I was just struck by that contrast, that sudden contrast between walking around in neighborhoods here in Massachusetts and you know you don't see kids outdoors playing no. if you see kids outdoors they're they're in uniforms on some kind of manicured field doing what the coach is telling them to do they're not playing you know they're not just out there on their own and here now in the Dominican Republic there are poor kids out there really playing and really having fun, right? And it looked like what I used to do. And that, and that struck me. And that led me to another line of research, which was, has anybody documented this decline of play? And if play has really declined, if there's really been, since when I was a kid in the 1950s and today, there's really been a continuous decline in play, what might be the consequences of that? And that's what led me to do the research. This was not empirical research of my own, but research and putting together other people's research. So there's researchers, historians who have documented the fact that children's play has declined over the decades, especially outdoor play, especially real play, what some people would call free play. And at the same time, and completely correlated with that, there has been this continuous rise in 
anxiety and depression, very well documented. It's not just that we're identifying anxiety and depression that we didn't identify before, even by the same measures that have been used in unchanged forms, anxiety and depression among children are increasing. Narcissism is increasing. There are uh, there's standardized tests of that. Creativity has been decreasing, at least for the last three decades. These are all the changes that anybody who understands the value of play would predict would occur <laughs> if children are being deprived of play. And so in a sense, just observing that, that, that experience I had of the Dominican Republic, which jarred me into the realization that kids aren't playing anymore in the United States like they used to, led to that particular line of research. I love the fact that you brought up, you know, looking at our own past of childhood to see, you know, the difference between what our kids are going through now. Um, you know, in your book, you talk about how, you know, regardless of age, we all prefer freedom and self-direction instead of rigid control by other people. But we forget that with kids. You know, we forget how how much that helps our own sensibilities but when it comes to our children, all of a sudden we think they need to be directed and, you know, those types of activities. Before we say goodbye, I mean, I have I had pages and pages of questions because it really is a phenomenal book. It's a wonderful research. But just give us some parting words that you think maybe things that we haven't talked on that you want our listeners to know. And then give us your contact information, how they can find more information and hopefully get your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I would have this as a parting information. I think that we would like to think that the history, at least sort of recent history of humanity, has been a movement towards more and more recognition of the value of individual human rights and of the importance of freedoms. We've been through that. If we think about the history, uh, American history, you know, we started off with the idea that white male property owners, you know, mm -hmm. were had rights, you know. Yeah. And then we went through stages where we became to the idea that that uh, Africans living in our country who are brought in as slaves deserve rights too and freedoms. Mm -hmm. And women, lo and behold, are actually people, right? You yeah. know? And, and they deserve rights, and uh, they're, they shouldn't be uh, subject to restraints and requirements and, and rule by others that uh, men are uh, not subject to. And I would really like to suggest that I think the new um, movement has to be towards the rights of children. Over this same time that other groups, you know, not just not just uh, African Americans and women, but people who are gay and so on. We could run through the list. We've begun to recognize the rights and legitimacy of those rights for those people. But over this same period of time, where in many cases we've become a world of more human rights and more freedoms, children have become subjected to less rights, more restraint, and we've got to reverse that. And if we really care about children and we really care about human because children are human beings and childhood is a good portion of human life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we need to make sure that we are guaranteeing to the degree that's possible. And that and we know it's possible because it's occurred in the past that children have the rights to be children, to play and explore, to do things on their own, to not be constantly micromanaged. One way I sometimes make this point is 
suppose you as an adult had the opportunity to have a job that was essentially had the characteristics of being a school child, where you are in this situation all day long, day after day, where you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, <laughs> where you cannot just freely talk to your coworkers, <laughs> you, you know, that's disregarded as disruptive, where everything you do is being evaluated, where your work is being totally micromanaged, you're being told exactly what to do and how to do it. This would be a nightmare job. <laughs> this is, in fact, there's research showing this is exactly the kind of job that people hate. And yet, this is what we are requiring our children to do. You know, we used to, you know, it was, it's, been a, it's been at least 100 years since we banned uh, full-time child labor. You know, we, we, we came to the conclusion that children are, shouldn't be working all day long. They need time to play. They need time to explore. They need time with their families. That childhood is a time of growth and experience and learning, and we don't want them working in coal mines and sweatshops and so on and so forth. But you know something? We've kind of replaced those jobs with something that's almost as odious as that. <laughs> school. <laughs> school. Because uh. kids... Many, many kids are spending more time at their schoolwork than their parents are spending at their full-time 40-hour-a-week jobs. That's a fact. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and those kids would prefer the job that their parents have. <laughs> they would prefer <laughs> that. They would see themselves as more free if they had that job than if they had the job that they have at school. These are, these are things we've got to We've got to acknowledge this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you don't believe that there's not uh, child discrimination, just take your child out, you know, during the day when they should be in school, you know, to the supermarket or whatever and watch the looks that you get of <laughs> people thinking, yes. doing horrible things. But, but give us your contact information where our listeners can find more of your writing. Of course, I'm hoping that people will, who haven't uh, read my book, Free to Learn, will. That's, fabulous, That's where yeah. I lay out these arguments most fully and present the documented evidence. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of uh, citation of um, research that support the points that I've been making uh, in this talk. I write essays for Psychology Today magazine, which are published on a blog that I do for Psychology Today called Freedom to Learn. Uh, you can easily find that blog. Just Google Psychology Today Peter Gray. About once a month, sometimes a little more frequently, I come out with a new essay. I've got over a period of time now something like about 150 essays that deal with these issues. And you can also find if you want to contact me in some way or uh, there's an author page there that, and a way to contact me. For example, if you wanted to invite me to give a talk at some place, that's a contact information. I have a Facebook page. You can find my Facebook page and follow me on Facebook if you would like. And the other link that I would like to give you is uh, that to uh, an organization that I'm very much involved with called the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. This is a new organization. It's a place where we're starting to put together a lot of information about self-directed education, how to pursue it, how many people are doing. Turns out more and more people are doing this in various kinds of ways. There are, you can find links to the some of the research being conducted that shows that it works. 
the alliance, part of the purpose of the alliance is to bring people together who are pursuing uh, self-directed education for their children, whether it's through unschooling or schools like Sudbury Valley School. And so that's another uh, another uh, resource that I would like to mention to people. Great. Well, and I will give uh, Peter's book, uh, Free to Learn, a full endorsement. It's just fabulous. He approached it like he did, a, you know, when he was a child. He talked about him being a scientist. It's definitely very scientific, but it's not boring. It's extremely interesting. Like I said, every time I picked it up, I had a hard time even putting it down. And the selfdirected.org website that he talked about, it's also filled with information, including videos and articles and stuff like that. But we will be sure to link all the information that we discussed today on our website as well. But thank you so much, Peter, for joining us and helping to light our minds on fire, particularly about this just enormously important topic. Well, I'm very glad to do so. And thank you very much for your interest in this and, and pursuing it in your ways. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. To learn more about Peter Gray and to get his book, go to our show notes, theluminousmind.net. Be sure to become a subscriber to our free email list and get our new monthly newsletter. Then check out the services tab to see how we can continue to assist you, our fire starters. Also, to help us continue production of illuminating content, go to the sponsor tab at theluminousmind.net. For more information on sponsorship and affiliate programs, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Google+, Pinterest, and now Instagram. Get our free audio content by subscribing on YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. To help us grow, consider these easy ways. Tell your friends about us. Leave us a review. Share our content. Tell us how we can help you so together we can continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education. 